Good evening, listeners. It is April 9th, 2017, and you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can only mean one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Kristen Finch. And I am Adrian Gallo. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and interested in coming on the show or just want to find out all about the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our upcoming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests, and do not represent the opinions of Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, we are joined by Sarah Alto from the Department of Integrative Biology. Say hey, Sarah. Hey, how's it going? (laughs) And what, uh, we already said you're from Integrative Biology, but who do you work with? I work with James Struther in the IB, Integrative Biology. Um, actually, my um, my program is molecular and cellular biology graduate program, um, and yeah, cool. Oh, and that sounds sweet. <laughs> and are you seeking a master's or a PhD? Going for the PhD. Oh, she's in it for the long haul. Yeah. Like, oh boy, like all of us. <laughs> yeah. All right, Sarah. So that's that's awesome. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing. So I am look, researching um, behavioral neurobiology. So I'm looking at the um, in between the control of behavior, and so like in textbooks, what you have is you can see the, the somites, the the cells, bodies, and the neuron, the neurons connecting, and then you have all you can jump into behavior, what happens with the interaction with environment, um, but there's very little about known about the control between the two, you know, very simple cell and behavior. So I'm looking at the in between. Very cool. And huh. how do you do that? Well, um, first you have to look at the behavior and see something that's interesting, maybe. Um, and then also that later on, go on and look at the brain. So I get to go in and look at really cool images all day long. Huh. And, you know, I, I get the sense that researchers often tend to focus on one of the two and they can spend their entire careers doing just behavioral mm-hmm kind of uh, identification and pattern type stuff you know why why do some organisms do this or that and then some will focus on the strict biology sort of things but you're going in the right in the middle and trying to figure out how do you bridge the gap between how to not maybe predict behavior but maybe understand behavior based on our physical understanding of what the brain looks like is that is that close Yep, that's that's re- really close. Though my advisor would probably say I've been sticking a little bit too much on the behavior right now. Um, <laughs> but yeah, definitely looking into. I mean, going a really large um, span that I'm trying to cover, um, just in a mere probably six years, probably not five years. Um, but um, looking into all that, you know, going really quickly, but then just going right. I love being able to go the broadband and see kind of because I don't know what's going to what I'm going to find. So I have to be kind of broad in order to see what I could find out. So which organism are you uh, studying the behavior of? I'm looking at um, zebrafish, 
They're little tiny little um, tropical fish that are commonly used. They're model organisms. They're um, used in many labs, um, both for genetics and um, looking at um, different um, disease models as well. And we're looking at the neurobiology with them. Cool. And so what is a, what is a model organism? Great question. Model uh, organism is an organism, organism that is easily reared, so something that can be easily um, grown up in a lab environment. Um, it's also very small, so that's a great, great space saver for us as well. <laughs> uh, it's also very short generation time, so it's um, basically from when they are embryos to adults, it's very short. Um, about um, four months, they're ready to breed again. So very quick generation between the de- generations. Um, also, their, um, their genome, we, ha- we know a lot about their genetics, and we have a lot of genetic tools. So there's a lot of manipulation being inclusion, inclusion of um, green fluorescent proteins, GFP, or, or um, red fluorescent proteins in them so that we can see different proteins and expressions. Cool. And uh, zebrafish so they have a short generation time and you can and but you say they're tiny. So how are you monitoring their behavior? So the d- adults are tiny, okay. but actually what I'm looking at is not even smaller. I'm looking <laughs> at the larva, larvae of zebrafish, um, which are basically like one millimeter, <laughs> one two millimeter. millimeters sometimes. So, um, yeah, I make very small equipment. Um, <laughs> that's one thing that when I joined the lab that I totally got a crash course in um, was doing. I, I went. I was going in for a biology, looking into biology, but actually I'm learning a lot of engineering. <laughs> um, so, yeah, designing a lot of small things in order to study the small organism. Cool. And what exactly are you looking at? Like what kinds of behavior uh, do you observe in, in these zebrafish? And what is normal versus abnormal maybe? So I'm looking specifically at the behavioral response with, uh, due to low oxygen um, it, low oxygen in the water or high, see, high carbon dioxide in the water. And the larvae respond in a in manner to fi- seek higher oxygen concentrations, therefore um, trying to prevent hyper, um, hyperventilation, basically. They want to make it easier for themselves to breathe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm looking at the response to try and um, mod- uh, try to achieve um, them seeking out for higher oxygen. So I'm looking at what their response is to having a low oxygen environment and what they do to try and change and try to seek out um, potential areas for oxygen in the in the environment. So if I'm deprived of oxygen, I'm going to be like freaking out, You're probably stressed. like, "Oh my gosh, what is happening?" Mm-hmm. Is that a similar response to a zebrafish? Yes. Um, initially, I've been seeing a lot of at the beginning very fast movement, trying to seek out um, places to go. Um, there's like also how we would freak out, put our hands up, and oh, run around. It's like, "Oh right. my god, what's yeah. happening? I need to figure out how to fix this." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay. Exactly. So very erratic behavior early very. on. And then what happens is they tend to go upward in the water column. So the closer you get to the surface, the more oxygen dissolves into the water and higher concentration of, of, of dissolved oxygen. So the larvae tend to be, we've been seeing a little bit of upward swim, um, but 
what happens really is that the larvae tend to slow down. So they start conserving their energy um, rather than excruiting a lot of energy trying to seek areas of high oxygen. They tend to just start to decrease their activity in order to conserve more of their their resources metabolism-wise. So then once they find out that, okay, I can't immediately fix this oxygen deficit, then they kind of go into the conservation mindset of – Stay calm. Just keep swimming. Just Ex- keep swimming. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. So, uh, so how, how exactly are you monitoring these fish? Is it you on a pencil and paper and just watching each and every one to see where they go? So actually, um, I record them and I write write well description, well um, very <laughs> thorough descriptions of what they're doing. But I'm recording them. Um, with my experiment, I'm looking at the um, 3D trajectory. So I'm actually recording them from two perspectives, from the side and from um, the top to bottom perspective. And then I'm able to make a trajectory tracking system of the larvae in their environment. So whether they go left, right in in their little uh fish tank or they go up and down the water column you can figure out exactly where they're going exactly yes and what and you're using infrared is that right yes this whole system is um, has a backlit of infrared light um, just so that way the um, larvae isn't it has ex- excitation in their the excitement uh, in their brain activity later on um, with exposure to other light just visual visible light that we see so the infrared i can see the larvae pretty well um, with the cameras that I have installed, their infrared le- um, cameras, and the larvae are very well defined. It's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> and speaking of you learning a lot of engineering, this sounds like a little engineering feat because you're not just looking at one larvae. How many are you looking at? And like, what does your setup look like to kind of identify all the different combinations of oxygen exposure, oxygen deficit, and you know, like how, how many little mini tanks and larvae are you looking at at, a, at any time? Well, one tank, one larvae at a time. Currently, I'm running two-hour experiments. So the larvae get placed in a tank. I, there's an enclosure that closes off. So basically, the larvae are by themselves, in, in, either in, in the dark. And I don't have any interaction, interaction with them at all afterwards. And I just record what they do. Um, the little tank has um, bubbles that bu- bubble in the specific oxygen, CO2, and nitrogen um, gas concentrations into the water. Um, so that's all automatic. The computer runs that completely. The computer also runs the cameras at the exact same time. There's a pump that rotates the water and circulates the water throughout the tank. Um, yeah, there's a low, whole lot of engineering. I did not, <laughs> like... Oh, the the amount of hours my advisor has tried, you know, he's still teaching me. I'm sure he <laughs> kind of goes, oh, gosh, not again. <laughs> so I'm wondering how then do you, so you're watching these fish, watching and watching them to monitor their behavior under these certain conditions. Mm-hmm. And then, but you want to know also what's happening in their little tiny brains. And so how do you go from behavior and watching them swim to actually getting a visual of their brain and what's going on in there? So my goal, uh, my my plan is going to be using the larvae and exposing them to the same environment that I'm exposing them into the behavioral studies. Um, The one thing that's going to happen is that they're going to be immobilized. 
So the immobilization will be able to give, give me the ability to image their brains. Wait, when you say immobilized, like they can't, they don't swim, they don't move? Yeah, they will not. How? So they're going to be placed in this, well, auger. It's kind of like a um, gelatin, you know, jello type substance that is really viscous, really, really thick. Like you'll, you can't move. Um, So that way they're not moving around because if they move around, I can't image their brain. So I need them perfectly still. So that way I can um, use a microscope that will scan through their entire brain and then be able to pick up on the excitation or actually the changes in calcium. I'll be seeing the changes in calcium in my images. So that's what it translates to is I'm a stressed out zebrafish. I'm in a little fish street jacket, can't move. And and, um, I'm exposed to low oxygen. Mm -hmm. And what's really going on in my brain is that there are different changes in calcium that are giving me the signals that I'm stressed out. I need to do this. I need to do that. Or potentially, is that what you're saying? Yes. So potentially... I'm hoping to see the different circuits in the brain that react to the changes in the oxygen level in the water and how the larvae is responding to that. How is it regulating its heart rate? How is it regulating its respiration? Is it doing anything else? Is there some other part of the brain that's um, being activated um, in response to the respiration, the changes in respiration? Um, so you're seeing the connection between how the environment is when the environment is changed and how the animal reacts to it and being able to see in almost in real time the moment that the animal's exposed to the different changes be able to see the basically the neurons firing at the at that moment and be able to hopefully it's it's not going to be like I can find out the circuit like right <laughs> right away if anyone's seen a, a actual image of a brain um, that's almost impossible. (laughs) Um, But I'm hoping to kind of get information to start breaking down what's going on. You know, this, this really reminds me of something that Neil deGrasse Tyson said in an interview a couple, couple days ago that I heard. And he describes that the research that goes on in universities, there is no yet known return on investment for some of this research. Like we don't really know what application this has yet. We're really searching in the unknown. And he says that there's no yet known return on investment because they, and they meaning you, Sarah, they are on the <laughs> frontier that has a greater distance from that applicability than that research. So the seed of tomorrow's technological innovations are here at universities. And I think your research in particular really shows that we don't know exactly how we're going to be able to use it. We don't know exactly what we're going to find, but we need to really figure out what's what's causing a physical change in brain architecture and how that is translating into behavioral responses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'm I'm not on the on the same level as as Neil, but um, I, <laughs> I don't think anybody yeah, is. No, right? <laughs> no, I don't think I'll ever achieve that status. But um, never say never, Sarah. No, 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 no I won't. But um, my advisor might. Know. <laughs> um, but the, I mean, gosh, yeah. I, that's one of the things of going into science for me was, you know, at first it was all about protocol and experimental design. But then when I got the opportunity to join the lab that I joined, um, being able to actually do something that no one, we don't, you know, there's some things that we can figure out and piece together based on other organisms, but really trying to figure out exactly what our question is of how the control of respiration is occurring. 
yeah, no, we're, we're in the kind of the forefront. We don't know what's going to happen. It's not going to be, you know, we don't have any roadmap <laughs> at all. <laughs> um, but it's, it's exciting. I really am glad that I'm doing it. So before we get into the realm of known unknowns, uh, let's, let's take a step back and kind of go into how you got into science in the first place. You know, what, what brought you to Oregon state or maybe what brought you to science in general? So science in general, I actually, um, I was pretty late in getting into the science game. Um, I was kind of got the bug when I was a senior in high school. So I wasn't the person, I wasn't the kid that would go to, you know, have, be really well in, in the science fairs growing up. I was pretty <laughs> late. Um, I was actually in the art scene. I was, art was your passion. Art for, was my passion uh, growing up, and it still is. I still yeah. love to draw and paint. It's one of my many things I'd like to do. Um, but yeah, and, and in high school, I was introduced by teach, um, my then chemistry and also AP biology Small town people tend to have many ha- teachers tend to have many hats <laughs> in small towns, um, but I was in. Uh, he encouraged me, and I thought, "Oh sh- no, no, I can't do this. This is science. This is AP biology. I just need to pass chemistry. Come on." Um, and yeah, he told me, and I just did it. And I thought, "This is pretty cool." So he convinced yeah. you to take the class. He did, and he said, "You can do this. Like just, just do it." And I was like. I- I don't need this stress. I'm like, I'm a senior in, in high school. I'm about, I'm out the door. You want to do the least work possible just to, yeah. to finish. <laughs> and here I am doing AP biology because that's what I do. Tend, you know, in my whole life, I tend to do the most difficult thing ever. <laughs> um, research in point. Um, but the whole, um, I, I did AP biology um, the big thing there was um, he loved plant biology, but actually I got hooked in the genetics. For me, genetics was really cool and amazing, and I couldn't get enough of it. And um, when I was cons- trying to figure out what I was going to do for my majors, um, when I got into college, I I was still wanting to do art, but because it was so late in being exposed to being in really hardcore science later on, that I didn't was like, I don't know if I really want to major in biology. Um, but once I got through, I went to community college right after high school. Um, I had to do some growing up. I didn't know what I was, heck I was going to be <laughs> doing anyway. Jeez. Um, and I, what I did was went into my four year. I got into UC Berkeley um, after my J, J, uh, JC. And I realized that I was missing something. And that was one thing that really drove me to go and pursue, go back to biology. And so I did a double major. So once again, going the hard way. The hard way. Yeah, wow. I know. I did. So, so hold on. So I, I'm just trying to follow. You have such an interesting life journey. <laughs> you, so you're an artist and you love to draw and paint. And that's what you want to do. And that's what you've always wanted to do. And then some teacher has to push you and challenge you and maybe break you out of your comfort zone with academics a little bit. And you get turned on to science and you say, oh my gosh, this is awesome. And somehow that's still enough that you want to go to like one of the hardest California schools. Am I right? UC Berkeley. That go is- to UC Berkeley, a very uh, high profile college and not just go there for science, but double major. 
Right? Sarah, what are you doing? Oh, I'm a glutton for punishment. I know. Yes. <laughs> for punishment. Um, gosh, yeah. No, I, I'm always driven to do more. Like, um, so the idea, so actually going into biology, I wanted to be an animator when I was an artist. And so they okay. kind of went in, I was taking a lot of um, anatomy classes to be able to learn and realizing, you know what, us, I can do this. This is pretty cool. This is, this is really neat. And then, um, yeah, no, I, when I got into Berkeley, it was more, um, it was a, my, my brother actually, he was like, do it, just apply, just apply. You can do this, just apply. And I was like, no way. I'm not going to Berkeley. Are you kidding me? That's where the geniuses go. Like, I'm not, no, I'm not, no, no, I'm not going to go there. Um, but then when I got in, I was like, wait, what? You know, <laughs> um, but I was like, oh, why not going to San- and anyway, if anything, I get to go to San Francisco like every other weekend. So why not? Um, so yeah, no. And when I did the double major, I really was, um, I was excited to be back in learning about, you know, at the time I was really interested in genetics still. And I was just excited to be doing, I was excited to do both art and science. I was actually alternating days. I would do science uh, Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays, because those were lab days. <laughs> and art Tuesday, Thursday, and on the weekend, because the art labs were open on the weekends. So I was constantly like juggling, like putting one hat on and then taking one hat off all the time. Didn't get to go to San Francisco as much as I wanted to, though. That sucked. <laughs> but you eventually did, though, right? And you eventually ended up living there, huh? Yes. I went and so after I graduated, I got a job at University of California, San Francisco, so UCSF, as a research associate at the time, one. And for, for yeah. those that don't research know. Research associate, one. Yes. <laughs> UCSF is a premier medical university where they do all kinds of great research there. It's incredibly difficult to get any position there. Oh, God. Yeah. No, when, so at the time when I got it, um, when I graduated college, it, the job market was pretty hard to you know get anything. Um, it was that lull that, you know, the, the great recession that we were in at the time. And when I got the phone call from my boss, um, his name was Ophir Klein, um, I was like, wait, like I had applied to this job four months previous. And, and you've I, probably been applying to so many jobs that you through the time probably don't even remember. Right. Yeah, no, I was like, I, he called up and I was like, did I even apply to you? Like, like, you know, like I, mean, I, I don't even remember. Like it was at the time my job was finding a job. So basically, like, I would, like, be segmenting my time going, ah, you know. Um, But, yeah, when I got the phone call, I was kind of like, oh, my gosh. And not only that, but it's UCSF, great medical school. At the time, I was even considering becoming um, um, what's a Ph.D. M.D. slash M.D. Um, There's programs that allow you to become a doctor and a doctor. So um, (laughs) one of those things where I was like, oh, I could, you know, I could do this. This is really cool. And um so I went into the lab to kind of get the experience of, do I really want to be doing research? Do I really want to be stuck in lab for the rest of my life? So I thought, this is opportunity. Go it. Do it. It's a job. So we get some money, get some experience, figure out if, you know, if I really want to do this or not for the rest of my life. And yeah, so I think you probably can guess what I want, what I decided to do. <laughs> um, Actually, before we get there, I'm going to ask you a tough question. Okay. 
How difficult was it to kind of decide, maybe not decide, but to split your time between your once and always passion doing art and, you know, pursuing this this kind of scientific realm that sounds very constantly frustrating of applying for jobs? And did you ever think to yourself, you know what, I'm just going to find a little studio apartment and paint and then and then try and make my living that way? Did that ever come come as a thought for you? Oh, abs- absolutely. Um when I was in college, I thought about it, but really when I thought about my future, I, I knew I could always do art and go, th- but I didn't think I could really succeed in going further and, you know, the starving artist struggling through. Um, to me, I was really more, I found I was more excited by biology, like the biology was feeding my art <laughs> to be like, I wanted to capture life in essence, and I wanted to understand more. So the idea of going into biology for me was, you know, I actually want to understand more what's going on. And for me, that was kind of like turning point going, okay, this is, I should probably pursue this. You know, the idea of um, being part of something bigger than myself. Um, not saying that art isn't, I mean, art, you know, is extraordinary and it opens up someone's thought, you know, you perspective. Um, but I felt also that I could, you could see, say the same thing about science really. I mean, arts and sciences are always tend to be together in call in universities anyway. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really was excited about being able to learn more, but also the idea, especially at Berkeley being exposed to graduate students um, growing up, um, the university that was at my in my hometown, Humboldt State, um, there wasn't really you could de- get a master's, but there was no um, exposure to PhDs. You know, you had professors, but it, I didn't really understand the culture, the academic world, until I got there. And when I started talking at the time, we don't call them; they didn't call them TAs; they call them GTAs because um, it's Berkeley and me like to add more acronyms graduate but, teaching assistants for your for those yes <laughs> yeah graduate teaching assistants. so not only do are we teaching assistants but we have to say graduate as well <laughs> um but talking to them and figuring and listening to what they're doing and being able to see the research that they were doing i was really intrigued by that i really want to know more about it so yeah i'm hoping i'm not talking too much about it (laughs) great um i just want to remind the listeners really quick that you're listening to inspiration dissemination and we are on with sarah alto from integrative biology and she studies zebrafish and their response to stress physically and mentally um sarah you're just about to tell us how you kind of got into the idea of going to graduate school Mm -hmm. and then um please after that tell us how you decided oregon state okay so when I was a technician, so going through all the paces. And this um, is now at UCSF. UCSF still. Okay. Yeah, yeah. San Francisco, yeah. Premier Medical Institution. Okay. Doing all kinds of cool stuff. Oh, yeah. Groundbreaking work, I'm sure. <laughs> no big deal. Well, <laughs> the, the researchers were doing groundbreaking work. Um, but after two and a half years of doing, I mean, it's a really important. Technician jobs are extremely important. But I was doing the exact same thing over and over again every single week. For two and a half years. Hmm. And it was at that time I was like, well, I could continue doing this. At the time, I didn't know of jobs 
you know, the job market was still pretty bad. I was like, I don't want to lose this job and continue to struggle. You know, this is a good gig. I can, you know, why leave it? And I talked to a lot of postdocs because at UCSF, there's not, there's no undergrad population, actually. There is only graduate students, postdocs, and, you know, medical doctors and um, what they call PIs, principal investigators. And basically I thought, well, I, you know, I talked with a bunch of postdocs and said, you know, about what they did and what they, you know, they were doing. And I was really like, I always marveled at, you know, they could think of, you know, new experiments. They were designing things. They were doing things on their own. They were, I mean, they had the principal investigator, basically the figurehead, Mm-hmm. Doing you know doing all the grant writing, but they were making something. They were the ones doing it, and they would they would be telling me what to do. But I wanted to be able to be the one to tell <laughs> tell someone else what to do. I wanted to be start becoming my own boss. Um, I didn't. I, mean, I still don't know if I want to become a principal investigator or not yet. But I was like, you know, this is pretty cool. I want the freedom to ask your questions? Exactly. Like I I have questions. Or I can I can I can figure out what kind of questions I need to ask, um, but yeah, I was like, I, I think I, I need to do this. I need to pursue something, and that's when I decided to go to graduate school. Um, it was really at that time, so I decided not to pursue a medical degree. I was more interested in research. The idea of being, you know, adding something, you know, even if it's just a small little snippet of information to the future. You know, I really thought that'd be, for me, a good use of my time and something that I could look back and go, even though it might be something small, maybe, just maybe, what I've done could be used in the future. I know it's like grandiose, like, oh, you know, but I thought, well, maybe there's a little bit of something for me out there in the ether that I can be, say, it's me, that I contribute it somehow. Even if I'm long gone, I can somehow, you know, the idea of continuing on the knowledge because that's something that's amazing. Like knowledge is power. And if you can help add to it, it's nothing more. So going into grad school, I, so I decided, you know, grad school, that's it. Um, I knew going in most master's programs that you had to pay for it. And um, once again, money is tight. I was living in San Francisco at the time. So yeah, no, I didn't have too much money. So um, I, I thought, well, I need to go to graduate school, but I also want to be paid. So I decided to pursue a PhD rather than a master's um, just because of my financial standings of where I was. And one of the first um, grad schools that I got accepted to or got asked for an interview was Oregon State. Um, I I applied for the molecular and cellular biology program and um, I was still at the time wanting to go study what was called um, epigenetics, the regulation of the genome of the genes um, based on proteins. Um, and I was really excited to you know come and see. You know, there's a couple of people here that I wanted to see, and it was really me coming to campus and seeing seeing the campus. Actually, I'd been here. Um, Several years prior, my brother was looking into the school as, as for undergrad, and I was like, oh, I want to see, you know, it, it feels exactly the same way it did years past. And I was like, I, and it also reminded me a lot of my home, 
town where it's small town feel. Um, there's no distraction of going to the city, which <laughs> no, I didn't go there. I didn't go to the city that too much during my undergrad, but I was like, no, I need to have focus. And this was great focus, but also a great atmosphere. And talking with a lot of the grad students at the time, there was um, a day or there was a, at the night they had poster session. Um, they had all the stu- grad, grad students come and talk to you with, of, um, in the program and in other departments. Um, and I was like, this is really cool. This is really neat. And I like the feel of this. It just feels calm. It feels like me. <laughs> And so you happen to fit in with the rest of the beavers there. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I went to other interviews and I was like, well, I could maybe, you know, go here or there, but it was really, I felt in my heart that was the right choice. So I always, you know, my gut feeling has never really stirred me wrong. It was what told me to do a double major. It was what told me to go to UC Berkeley. So I just said, let's just, Let's do this. Stick with the gut. <laughs> Stick with the gut. Well, it sounds um, like you've really come full circle then because you had this passion like going into graduate school about making even the smallest contribution. And now you're involved with this like very exploratory research, not really knowing what you're going to find, but you're like brave enough to do it. Yeah. So that's really awesome, Sarah. Um, well, uh, just a f- one more question I have about your research specifically with zebrafish is um, since zebrafish is a model organism for vertebrates, what could your research maybe, you know, even the exploratory nature of it, tell you, tell us potentially about um, humans or, or other organisms? So as you said, they're great model system for vertebrates, which that's what we are. <laughs> um, and even though, yes, they're fish and they're in the water and you go, well, their respiration is completely, I mean, it is completely different from our own, um, but they're vertebrates. We can connect a lot of what, you know, happens with them um, to other vertebrate models and then also ultimately to what maybe to what we have to us humans. Um, so the idea of u- utilizing um, zebrafish is great. So that way, maybe... It can be connected later on um, down the road. Because like you were saying, we really don't know very much between like reaction and brain, (laughs) what's going on in the brain. So that's very very exciting. You'll be building a bridge, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. Or or, or a line that someone can then build a bridge and then a highway. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. You can't really do what I'm doing in humans either. So. Yeah. 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 Minor stipulation. I don't like to be stressed out. Deprive them of oxygen. (laughs) Some you might want to. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Sarah. Well, we're getting um, down to the end of our show now, but we do have two traditions that we always keep to. And so our first tradition is to ask you for advice. And it sounds like you've got some great uh, personal experiences to draw from. So what advice do you have for our listeners? Follow your gut. Um, My entire life has been, you know, a lot of roadblocks, a lot of, um, you know, what you think you, what I think was should have done and what it should have happened. And what has steered me right is the my my heart and my first instinct like there's something about there's there's a moment 
where if it doesn't feel right, it isn't. But if it does, if something goes, this is right. I mean, the whole thing, you know, just like with joining my, my lab right here now, and it, um, it was a moment of, this feels right. This feels good. This is exactly where I should be and what I need to be. And I always tell, you know, if I ever, if anyone wants my advice, my two, two cents, that you should always follow, if there's something that you see that you go, maybe, just maybe that could be me. I tell them go for it because I was not the science geek growing up. I wasn't the person that excelled at that. And yet here I am because of my own determination, because I decided to put the work in. And if you have the will, if you have the drive, nothing, you can achieve everything. Nothing can stand in your way. It's, Always just go with your gut. Just keep going because sooner or later you'll get to where you're going to want to get to. And sometimes you, what you thought you couldn't get to get to might not be what you want or what, what you were expecting at all. You know, like if I had, so I thought about this today. If my high school self, if it was, if I was sitting right here next to my high school self, my high school self would have went, what? I, what do you do? Like, where are you? You're in grad school? What is grad school? You're in biology? You're doing neurobiology? Like, what are you doing? And, I mean, my life has been, um, you know, back and forth, different crossroads, going backtrack, you know, going, you know, the, you know, there's like two forks and deciding to go down one way, not the other. Um, but because I followed my heart and what was really my first, like, this is right – has led me to this point. And at least I have an interesting life story because of it. Um, but I feel like I can at least look at back in my life and go, you know what? I had a pretty good time. It was pretty good. So I highly encourage it. Always yeah. great advice. Yeah. So, and you're now you're doing all that exploratory fun stuff that you wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. Man, okay. If the, if the music hour before this didn't get me jazzed up. And yeah. then Sarah's <laughs> explanation right there didn't get me jazzed up. I don't know what will. But speaking of music, we have a second tradition. And the second tradition is we ask our guests to provide a song. So what song did you choose and why? So I chose um, Brain Stew from Green Day. So, you know, brain. There's brain in it. Um, <laughs> but also um, Green Day, so lead singer from Berkeley. You know, kind oh, of connection wow. there. Yeah. Billy Joel yeah. Armstrong. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, of course, I'm the, in the generation of, you know, growing up in the 90s on the radio. Um, I kind of was telling you this, Chris, <laughs> a while ago. <laughs> so growing up, I always listened to the radio. And the one thing, so CDs at the time were so expensive. Oh, ridiculous. And it was always like you wanted the CD for one song, just one song only. <laughs> so instead... Now, don't advocate this at all. But instead, we would um, listen to the radio or call in to the DJ and listen in. And, you know, you would try and do like a very horrible because at the time we don't have the recorders we have now. Like it was we don't have it on our we didn't have it on our phones. But you try to request yeah. a song and then have the yeah. tape recorder yeah. ready. But <laughs> they, they did it intentionally where they would be like, well, we might play your song within the hour. 
So you'd have to listen the entire radio cast, and usually with like you're doing like you're doing something else, and then all of a sudden, there's my jam. Oh shoot! Run, 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 run. Try to find find you know, like some kind of recorder or or, or a CD play. You know, you're, you're like your CD player at the time, like those big hunkin' walking Walkman discs, <laughs> and try and get it on. And so I was like, for Green Day, for me, um, growing up, so alternative rock, punk rock in the '90s. You know, I was all about that. So I loved that the hour before this, I was like, yes, all these great <laughs> songs. This is what I grew up. This is amazing. But I was like. This is ultimately me. This is me too. Yep. So you were uh, the inspiration for our hard rocking after yeah. evening that we've had so far. It's been very fun. Um, but anyway, so Sarah has provided us with Green Day Brain Stew, and that's from the Insomniac album, which is very good. But we're going to play that for you. And we just want to say one last time thank you for coming on the show, Sarah. And um, yeah, we'll have your song. Well, thank you so much for for letting me come on. I really appreciate. It. Of course, it was a pleasure. Thank you. And you are listening to Inspiration Dissemination, and this is Brain Stew by Green Day, a request of our guest Sarah Alto. We are on every Sunday at seven p.m. and we feature a different graduate student each week. So definitely tune in next week. We'll be on with Antonio Gomez. All right, here it is, Brain Stew. You heard it on KBVR Corvallis. I'm having trouble trying to sleep I'm counting shit but running out